Welcome, this is Philippe Albuquerque, and this is the next in the series of Editor's Choice podcasts. I am thrilled today to welcome Justin Frazier, who's the chair of the Standards and Guidelines Committee for SNIS, who will talk today briefly about committee's new manuscript entitled Current Endovascular Strategies for Posterior Circulation Large Vessel Occlusion Stroke, report of the SNIS Surgery Standards and Guidelines Committee. Um, this manuscript is currently on the JNIS website and will appear in the print issue of the JNIS in October. I'll say at the outset that this podcast is supported by Rapid Medical, the maker of the Comanich device. The Comanich is the only FDA cleared temporary coiling assisting device. It provides remodeling capability, yet does not arrest parent vessel blood flow during coiling procedures, potentially avoiding the need for costly stents and long-term anti-aggregate therapy. The Comanich is also CE marked and has been utilized in over 3,000 procedures to date. You can get more information about this device on their website at www.rapidmedical.com. Justin, welcome and thanks again for doing this. Thank you very much for, uh, for having us and for uh, giving us the opportunity to pass on the information that, uh, that our committee put together to the entire society. Great. Well, um, I think there are a, a few subheadings here that I really wanted to hit. Um, one is uh, the conflicting data that exists out there currently regarding posterior circulation uh, strokes. The other that we can get into uh, is the triage of these patients in the field and some of the confounding clinical factors that that really characterize posterior circulation stroke and uh, really signify the difference from the anterior circulation stroke. And then finally, um, we can conclude by discussing some of the uh, imaging modalities and uh, some of the treatments which may differ a bit from uh, some of the treatments for the anterior circulation. So uh, at the outset, Justin, can you briefly review uh, the methods that your committee uh, employs in creating one of these standards documents? Well, thanks so much, Philippe. And uh, I think this is, this is a great first question because yeah, I think it's so important for us to have transparency about how we go about producing these documents. These are intended to assist our uh, colleagues throughout the country and the world in management of neurointerventional disease. So it's important to know uh, exactly how do we come to these conclusions. <laughs> so what happens is uh, we put together a writing group around a particular topic, in this case, uh, posterior circulation large vessel occlusion. And it, it consists of uh, members of the Standards and Guidelines Committee uh, who are interested in that particular topic and want to spend time researching it. And then we, uh, as a writing group, put together an outline, uh, which is reviewed by the entire committee to ensure that we are capturing all the important aspects of a particular topic while not expounding endlessly upon uh, in different directions and keeping us focused on the questions at hand. And then with that outline in hand, we start our research process, which involves really a intended to be a thorough uh, delving into the literature, uh, gathering of data, um, and then classifying data based on the not only the class but level of evidence uh, using standard uh, work in terms of figuring out which publications are of what class and what's the strength of each publication in terms of its findings. With those things in hand then we construct the document and then that document goes through a rigorous review process where it's reviewed by the entire committee 
with an opportunity for discussion and review and editing. And then it goes to our SNIS board for, again, another review. And finally, uh, we put it through a medical legal uh, evaluation to ensure that we are not creating contrary recommendations that our membership and other providers may find difficult to employ in their practice. Once that's all done, we submit it to you and in, in your group for review, and, uh, and we welcome comments and make any changes that, that we get through peer review. So it's a multi-step process to really bring one of these documents out. And we like that because we hope and aim for that to provide rigor in what we're providing to our to our society, to our membership, and to providers out there. Well, I, I certainly think you've done that. Uh, your committee really has done uh, fantastic work, and it is, as you described, quite a rigorous process. Um, so getting back to uh, your manuscript uh, regarding posterior circulation, stroke. You mentioned in your introduction some of the conflicting uh, and confounding reports on the results of posterior circulation revascularization. What do you think, Justin, accounts for the disparity in these results? You know, you, you specifically cite the Lindsberg report uh, as well as the Helsinki registry, and, and the numbers uh, in terms of good out, uh, outcomes are, are pretty markedly different between the two studies. So how can you kind of summarize the, these conflicting uh, reports? There are two aspects to your question, I think, here. And the first is it really depends upon what kind of publication you're looking at. And so the Lindsberg report that we refer to in our introduction was a literature analysis, a very good and rigorous one. And it looked at revascularization or rekennelization to the posterior circulation through any means. And furthermore, it was published in the 2000s. And so you also have to keep in mind the advancements that have occurred since then. And even in their finding, which was that on average, uh, rekennelized patients have a good outcome about 38% of the time. Comparatively, the Helsinki Stroke Registry, which was kind of an institutional registry, um, and really looked at patients who got therapy within four and a half hours. And so that certainly could account for some of that disparity. And so each of these documents has a very clear set of inclusion exclusion criteria. And if they don't match up, you can see how the numbers might be different. However, as a second point though, despite all of that, despite that disparity, their message was the same. And in the Lindsberg group or in the Helsinki paper, both papers found that there was a significant disparity between good outcome in patients who were recanalized versus not recanalized. And so I think that was our message there, which was that we really want to shoot for recanalization in these patients. And with that in mind, that's why we thought this topic was so important. Sure. And I, I should say, early on in the podcast that the conclusion of your study was uh, quotations, while many questions about PCL will remain to be studied, there is evidence to support particular practices in its evaluation and treatment. We should say that at the beginning, that that certainly, uh, as you mentioned, recanalization and recanalization at an early um, period of time is beneficial, certainly in posterior circulation stroke, just as it is in anterior circulation stroke. Justin, you, you discuss a bit um, the confounding 
uh, nature of the posterior circulation patient neurological exam. I mean, these patients are different from anterior circulation stroke patients, and and that can be to their real detriment because some of these patients may not look as uh, as ill as their radiographic imaging suggests. Can you discuss a little bit about the um, limitations of, say, the field assessment of these patients, uh, triage scales, and some of these confounding clinical factors that you know, could contribute to worse outcomes in these patients. Absolutely. This was a, a subsection of the paper. And what I can tell you is our committee had a lot of discussion about the fact that we could have, frankly, created a paper just on that one topic because it's so important and it's so unique to the posterior circulation. Um, and we talk about the fact that the symptoms that you can see from a posterior circulation elbow are quite varied. And it really depends. I mean, we're talking millimeters of difference in terms of where that thrombus might be. You know, if it's down near the vertebral artery, or if it's mid-basilar, or if it's at the top of the basilar artery, you're going to get very different symptoms. And well, we as neurointerventionalists are trained to recognize that. You hit the nail on the head there in the sense that our EMS providers often aren't. And whether you're using the race scale, the C-STAT scale, the LAM scale, or any other pre-hospital stroke evaluation clinical scale, you could very easily not diagnose a large vessel occlusion if you try to apply that scale to a patient with a posterior circulation elbow. And many of these patients are easily confused with other diagnoses. When your symptoms are nausea, vomiting, or just being found down, drug overdose is, is right up there at the top. And so it is very common for these patients to come in. They kind of get the usual workup for things like that. They get their, you know, their drug overdose reversed. They start, you know, the ED will start looking at various other pot potential diagnoses. And then when they don't respond, that's when they start doing a neurologic workup. So that definitely requires some attention in the future, I think, with regard to some leadership and figuring out how best to get at that. That's certainly an ongoing problem. Our goal here was to summarize that, summarize those symptoms, provide our readership with you know, a full a list of what can happen to a posterior circulation a elbow patient so that they can at least recognize it be on the lookout for it, and know when to jump in when they see these things happening. Now, because certainly once you do recognize it, now the clock is ticking and you really have to act. Certainly. Uh, and you mentioned that uh, that thrombus at different points along the posterior circulation can create different neurological syndromes. So yeah, these, uh, these patients can be quite uh, confusing and, and challenging to, to get into the uh, mechanical thrombolysis uh, portal, so to speak. Um, speaking of that, um, can you discuss as well some of the imaging modalities that perhaps may be a little bit different uh, in use for the posterior circulation versus the anterior circulation? In doing our review and looking at the evidence, you know, CTCTA is still a, a workhorse when it comes to rapid identification of elbow, whether it be in the anterior circulation or posterior circulation. 
We discussed a little bit some of the data around CT perfusion, which is more difficult in the posterior circulation. And we also spent a significant amount of time talking about MRI and rapid MRI, a quick MRI scan, not a, not a complete, you know, uh, uh, you know every, every single imaging modality you can, but we're talking about using DWI and flare to really try to understand what, what has been irreparably damaged, what hasn't, what does it mean? Because really, when you have a late presenting patient, and this happens, unfortunately, because of the topic we just talked about, you know, the delay in presentation, the delay in recognition, you may have a patient that's a day or two days into this before you even get a chance to really truly evaluate them. And so we owe it to ourselves to really look at them carefully. And while I tend to not be a fan, personally, of MRI scans for determining thrombectomy candidacy, in this particular case, looking at the data and what's out there, diffusion imaging on, uh, on MRI scan can really help us understand what outcome the patient might have if we reopen them. So if you're seeing an entire wipe out of the brainstem, you really need to ask yourself, what is the likely outcome here, even if I take the patient for thrombectomy? Absolutely. No, I, I agree. And I've been in that situation many times myself, um, where you do see the diffuse brain stem uh, infarction. You're right. I do think that uh, performing a rapid MRI, so to speak, is really institutionally dependent. There are some places where that just can't be done. And, and, and then in other places where, you know, the, it's a well-oiled machine and you can get those kinds of studies uh, quite quickly. I do want to uh, focus on something which is certainly different uh, from the anterior circulation patients, and that's the surgical considerations of patients with posterior circulation infarcts. Uh, these patients can present with large cerebellar infarcts with mass effects, hydrocephalus, as we know, obtundation, all of those things. How do those uh, scenarios uh, impact the performance of mechanical thrombolysis, Justin, in terms of timing, in terms of other things like use of antiplatelet agents and all of that? I think you, you hit the nail on the head there in the sense that these patients are almost a different group than the anterior circulation strokes because the brainstem and all of the neurologic sequelae that come with it are impacted. And so we, we spent some time talking even about basic stuff before we got into the surgical decompression aspect. We talked about things like intubation and airway because these folks oftentimes can have a a very uh, uh, a, a compromised airway. You know, they, they're at high risk of aspiration. Um, they may have uncontrolled breathing and respiration due to where their stroke is occurring. And so we need to kind of recognize that, understand that, and be ready to address it. And to that end, we did discuss, you know, intubation and the importance of that if it's needed, um, managing and expecting potential for aspiration as well as some cardiologic and endocrinologic sequelae. But going back to the point that you, you made, which is this issue of the posterior fossa, and well, we discuss decompression, you know, oftentimes for anterior circulation strokes, you know, very large MCA stroke, it doesn't take much in the posterior fossa in terms of a stroke volume to really have a high impact in terms of edema. And so looking at the data and reviewing it, we really found that that is an important part of taking care of posterior circulation strokes. And 
early recognition and early decisions to be aggressive about decompressing a cerebellar infarct can have major impact on outcome. And so the question then becomes, you know, how do you order all of these things? And while we didn't really go into that in the paper, I think the, the issue here is if you're going to make a decision to do thrombectomy, do that. But keep in mind that, hey, I may need to take this patient to, for decompression, or maybe I'm going, I know I'm going to take this patient for decompression. You know, have that in your mind already. You know, if you don't do it yourself, reach out to your colleague, a neurosurgeon that does it, talk to them, say, I'm, I'm taking a patient to thrombectomy or posterior circulation. You, got, you, know, you guys want to be on board and following them in case they need decompression so that you're not behind the eight ball. Yeah, I know. And with the you know, current treatment techniques, uh, it really shouldn't be that uh, that big a delay in getting these patients to the operating room. You know, mechanical thrombolysis really has uh, has come a long way. Um, so let's discuss that point uh, specifically, Justin, uh, and what you think may be uh, some of the differences in terms of treatment uh, with mechanical thrombolysis and the posterior circulation uh, versus the anterior circulation. And also, if you could touch on the issue of underlying intracranial atherosclerotic disease in the posterior circulation and, and you know, the potential need for angioplasty and stenting as a bailout in this particular scenario. Right. And it may have to do with not necessarily that ICAT is more common in the basal artery than the MCA, but perhaps more that in terms of the overall volume, thromboembolic strokes are more likely to go to the middle cerebral artery than they are to the basilar. And so as a denominator, you know, you're going to see when you do your anterior circulation, MCA, you know, ICAT occlusion thrombectomy, more often than not, that's going to be a thromboembolic phenomenon than a true secondary sequelae of a ruptured intracranial atherosclerotic plaque. But on the flip side, because posterior circulation large vessel occlusion is much more rare, the numbers are not so skewed towards thromboembolic. And so as you mentally prepare for your case, if you will, you want to be thinking to yourself, okay, I know I'm going in, it's a basal artery occlusion, there is a decent chance that this is going to be an intracranial athro patient, particularly if the thrombus is proximal or mid-basilar. Uh, distal basilar tends to be more thromboembolic, uh, not necessarily always the case, but you know, certainly just in terms of numbers. But you definitely need to be thinking about that. And that really is important because you may make decisions about your access and about your, your guide catheters with regard to length, with regard to sizing. Um, with that in mind, if you know, hey, I'm going to be up there. If I do the thrombectomy, it opens up and I'm looking and staring at a ruptured intracranial atherosclerotic plaque, what am I going to do? And if you haven't kind of prepared your setup for that, it adds more time and more complexity to change everything out to go up there with an intracranial balloon, angioplasty, and stent. Sure. And so I think, think knowing about it ahead of time helps us prepare and really create a setup that will work with, regardless of what you encounter. 
Great. Uh, I, I completely agree. Justin, just to, to conclude, I wanted to give you a chance to, to summarize your recommendations, your committee's recommendations regarding posterior circulation stroke uh, and mechanical thrombolysis. Yes, uh, and thank you so much again for having us. Um, just as a one side comment, if I can start off by saying our last recommendation had to do with access and, uh, and brachial and radial access. And I do want to mention to you that uh, we will be submitting our next document actually to being brought forward for consideration and review by the journal, which is an entire document dedicated to reviewing the literature on our current access strategies for neurointervention. So that'll be coming down the pike for everyone, hopefully soon. Great. Such a hot topic now. Stay tuned for that. But in terms of summarizing here, I think the takeaway messages really are we need, as neurointerventionalists, we should have this disease in our minds um, because many of our colleagues in the ED, in the field, aren't thinking about it every day, and that can lead to delays in diagnoses. And so it's important for us to be thinking about it, for us to image it, for us to be aggressive about it, and to, based on these literature, we should be employing our techniques for mechanical thrombectomy in the posterior circulation, understanding that we do need to be prepared to address ICAD when we encounter it, and realize that these patients are kind of a different subset in terms of their pre and peri and post-operative care in terms of the problems that they face related to brainstem function. And so knowing about that and preparing for that, I think will you know, help them do the best. Great. Well, I very much appreciate your time today, Justin, and, and your discussion of your, your manuscript entitled, again, Current Endovascular Strategies for Posterior Circulation Large Vessel Occlusion Stroke, Report of the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery Standards and Guidelines Committee. Uh, Justin, uh, as I mentioned at the outset, is the chair of that committee. Congratulations to you, Justin, not only on this, uh, this manuscript, but on the fine work of your committee, and thanks again. Thank you so much for having me.